the nation Israel, specifically Judah, they have been in the promised land for, oh, I guess we're probably over 800 years at this point, and uh, we're going to see uh, them taken into captivity tonight. It's been a long journey for them, and I think if we were to sum up their journey, I would have to say this. Their faith and obedience to the Lord had given way to their sin and idolatry. They wanted what all the other nations have, and now they have become, they're going to become like all the other nations as we will see Babylon come take Judah. Remember, the nation Israel was split into two parts. The ten northern ten tribes of the north were known as Israel. The two tribes of the south were known as Judah. They were taken, the ten tribes of the north were taken, oh, about 120 years earlier into what we call Assyrian captivity. And we're approaching this evening that what we call the Babylonian captivity. It's where Judah remained for a little while longer. Uh, and now they too are going to be taken into captivity because of their sin and because of their idolatry. So if you'll pick up with me in chapter 24, uh, we're going to kind of go through this tonight together. 24 verse 1, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. The word vassal describes a person or a country that is in a subordinate position to another in other words, uh, Jehoiakim was the king in Judah, but he was really under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. Then he turned and he rebelled against him. According to the Babylonian Chronicles, Nebuchadnezzar's father had died. Nebuchadnezzar had returned to Babylon and King Jehoiakim decided it would be a good time to rebel and fight against Babylon. He was not following the Lord or being led by the Lord. And let's see the results in chapter 2. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets, surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. What a sad place in the nation of Israel. Remembering why this is happening, it told us because of the sins of Manasseh. He undid everything his father Hezekiah had done. He walked in the ways of the evil kings before him. He rebuilt the high places. He raised up altars to Baal. He worshipped all, all the hosts of heaven. He created wooden images he also shed innocent blood in Jerusalem. Oh, how far the Lord's people have come or turned away from the Lord. How tragic it is. Even though Josiah's reign would seem to transform the country, for a short period of time, the hearts of the people remained evil and God's judgment was forthcoming. Do not be deceived. God is long-suffering, but judgment will always be coming. Verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, so he went from Jehoiakim to Jehoiachin, his son reigned in his place, and the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. It was 601 BC, Egypt had made one last attempt at stopping the Babylonian empire, they failed, Egypt faded away, and Babylon continued to rise, continued becoming the world power on the scene at that time. Now, we have a new king, went from Jehoiakim to Jehoiachin, let's see how he does in verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, he reigned in Jerusalem three months, his mother's name was Nehushta, 
She was named after the bronze serpent, Nehushtan, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. Verse 9, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. He carried on the tradition of the evil kings of Judah. The prophet Jeremiah called him Coniah. And listen to what the Lord had to say about Jehoiachin through the prophet Jeremiah. I'm just going to read to you Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. This is the Lord's thoughts about uh, Jehoiachin, as he refers to him as Coniah. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. He wanted nothing to do with them. He, he wanted, he, he was done with them. He had, the, Jehoiakim wanted, Chin, Jehoiachin wanted nothing to do with the Lord. And the Lord said, even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I'm, I'm throwing you off. I'm taking you off. Under Jehoiachin, the Babylonians would make one final attack, or make it, not, not a final, they'd make another attack, likely the second attack against Jerusalem. We'll see that pick up in verse 10. At that time, it's about 597 BC, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princess, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. Carried, him, carried out of there all the treasuries of the house of the Lord, and the treasuries of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Remember when Hezekiah showed the Babylonians all the treasures of the house of the Lord? And he showed the Babylonians all the treasures of his very own house? That's what they're coming after. He's the one that showed it. He had to show it off. And he never gave the Lord credit for what was happening in, in Judah. He took the credit for it. Look what I've accomplished. Now they've taken the sacred things of the temple, of the house of the Lord. They've taken all the king's treasure. There's some ancient tradition that tells us at this time, prior to this happening, Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant. We, we don't know for sure, but it's been said that he hid the Ark of the Covenant so that it was not among the things that would have been carried back to Babylon. Daniel 5 actually recounts for us a party in Babylon in later years when one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, his name was Belshazzar, Belshazzar is hosting a drunken party or a drunken orgy. He brings out the stolen treasures, the holy vessels from the house of the Lord. He's going to drink wine. He's going to serve wine out of them. Wanting to be disrespectful, wanting to defile the Lord. Belshazzar, Belshazzar mocked the God of Judah as they're partying this way. At that moment, it's when the hand appeared, the handwriting on the wall. God had judged Babylon, and that very night, the Persians dammed up the Euphrates and invaded the city from under the walls of Babylon. They were laughing, they were mocking, they were drinking from the vessels of the house of the Lord. They were making a joke of it. And that very night, they were attacked by the Persians and they lost. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't just stop with taking the sacred things of the Lord and the things of the king's house. He also took the people of God. Look at verse 14. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captains and all the craftsmen and the smiths. Ezekiel the prophet was among these. And while he was in Babylon, Ezekiel compiled his book of the prophecies. The end of verse 14, none remained except the poorest people of the land. He carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land. He carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon all the valiant men, 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000 who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive 
to Babylon. Babylon had removed the wealth. They'd removed the skilled workers. They'd removed the leadership from Jerusalem. And they left behind the poorest people. They left behind the people to work the land. And verse 17, And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Interestingly, the name Zedekiah means the Lord is righteous. The very last king of Judah, the last king of Israel, his name is Zedekiah, and his name means the Lord is righteous. That's the name that the king of Babylon gave to him. Perhaps the king was mocking Judah. Perhaps the king was mocking God, but the reality was, or the certainty was, righteous judgment of God was forthcoming. As a matter of fact, they were right in the middle of it. Verse 18, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah the Libna of Libna. Verse 19, he also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Man, you kind of get tired. It hurts to keep reading that, doesn't it? The nation Israel, evil in the king after king after king, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 11 through 20, tell us more of the evils of Zedekiah. We're not going to turn there for time reasons tonight. But specifically, we're told he didn't listen to Jeremiah. He didn't listen to the messengers of God. Instead, he mocked and disregarded the messages. All through this, even at the very last king of Judah, God was still speaking to the people. He was still trying to get their attention, still trying to get them to repent, still trying to get their attention, still wanting them to come back to him. Matter of fact, Zedekiah was the king that had the prophet Jeremiah flogged and tortured. He placed Jeremiah in the stocks and threw him into the miry pit to die. All of this, if I was God, years before I would have been done with them. But right up to the very end, he's still sending prophets, still sending people to speak to them. Verse 20, for because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Finally cast them out from his presence. All of this, all that it took. And now Zedekiah thinks he's going to rebel against Babylon. Seriously, does he think he have a chance? What's he expecting to happen? And with this final rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar says, enough is enough. I've had it. And he launches his third and final assault on Judah, or on Jerusalem. Zedekiah will be the last king of Judah. Let's watch as God's patience and long-suffering finally run out as we pick up in chapter 25, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it and they built a siege wall against it all around so the city was besieged until the 11th year of king zedekiah by the ninth day of the fourth month the famine had become so severe in the city there was no food for the people of the land jerusalem was a heavily walled city it was very well protected nebuchadnezzar built a siege wall around it what a siege wall was it was intended to surround a city so people couldn't they were allowed they would allow people that wanted to give up and surrender to come out but there was no food coming in they weren't allowed to, if you, if you left the city, you weren't allowed to come back into the city. And the people that remained inside the city walls were starving. They were getting more and more hungry. And they're trying to get them to surrender, trying to get them to, get them to give up. And with no food coming into the city, the famine would become more and more severe. About a year and a half is how long they stood outside the city. About a year and a half, they surrounded the city and they waited. 
it's kind of unthinkable in our culture, isn't it? We don't wait anything. We, we, would not, we don't like to wait for a day and a half, much less a year and a half. But they knew if they cut off the supply line to the city, the city would have to give up eventually. There was no food. There was nothing coming in. Certainly, the city had water in there. We know the Gihon Spring was within the walls. We know that. Hezekiah allowed, rerouted that. But there was no food able to come in. About a year and a half. And the Babylonians finally broke through the city walls. Look at verse 4. And the city wall was broken through. All the men of war fled at night by the way of the gate between two walls, which was the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. They pronounced judgment on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. That was going to be the last thing he saw. They put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They bound him with bronze fetters, and they took him to Babylon. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but it seems ironic to me the Israelites first stepped foot in the promised land in the plains of Jericho. When they crossed over the Jordan River, the first battle they fought was Jericho. The walls of Jericho came down. And now here they are again in the plains of Jericho with their very last and last king before their Babylonian captivity. In the same place, they experienced their first victory with the walls of Jericho falling before unarmed men who trusted God. But this is also the place where she's going to suffer her final defeat before they're given over to the Babylonians. Isn't that ironic how God does that? This is where the men came in. This is where they marched around the wall for seven days and the walls came just tumbling down. It's where Rahab hung a red, red scarlet thread outside the wall to let them know. It, it's, it's just amazing. Now here they are in this same general area. They're fleeing Jerusalem back to the same place where they crossed over the Jordan River. That's where they're going to be taken into captivity. Where his eyes are put out. He has to watch his, Zedekiah has to watch his children killed. And his eyes are put out. According to Ezekiel chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife died this same day as Jerusalem fell to Babylon. It was as God's way of illustrating the death of his beloved bride. His nation Israel. Israel meaning governed by God. There are two other interesting prophecies here. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 4 predicted that Zedekiah would see the king of Babylon eye to eye. But the other prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 12 verse 13 predicted Zedekiah would come to Babylon but never see it. How could he come someplace but never see it? How could he see the king eye to eye? It doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. They seem to be contradictory. But Zedekiah saw Nebuchadnezzar. He saw Nebuchadnezzar at his field headquarters in Riblah. He was judged and his eyes were plucked out. And then he was taken into captivity to Babylon. Both prophecies coming true. Look at verse 8. And in the fifth month, the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord in the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great. He burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. 
this city that had been so special, this city had been so sacred. Jerusalem had been searched and now secured by the Babylonians, and they burned the house of the Lord. Burned the temple. The Talmud declares that when the Babylonians entered the temple, they held a two-day feast there to desecrate it. On the third day, they set fire to the building, and the Talmud adds the fire burned throughout that day and into the next. It kept burning and burning and burning as they burned the temple of God. How tragic and how sad. The people had left their God. They had given their hearts to sin and idolatry. They'd exchanged the God that created them, the God that had provided for them. They'd taken their faith and obedience. They'd put it in the things of the world. And this is where they're, this is where they're ending up. They burned most of the city. They destroyed the great walls around it. All of this to make the city inha- inhabitable. No one would ever want to be there again. Here's something interesting. Jewish tradition tells us the temple was destroyed on the ninth day of the fifth month. The ninth day of the fifth month. You know when the Romans invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD, they destroyed the temple on the very same day the Babylonians did? Exactly the same day. The Jewish people call this the ninth day of the fifth month. They call it Tishbath. Tishbath. That's what they call it. For the first nine days of the month of Av, the Jews neither eat meat nor bathe. They mourn the tragic events that shape so much of their history. Then on Tishbab, they read Jeremiah's book of Lamentations and they weep over their loss. It's become a national day of mourning for them. Solomon's great temple was now in ruins. The city's been overtaken. It's going to stay in ruins for many years until it will be humbly, be humbly rebuilt by the returning exiles in the days of Ezra. That's when it'll get rebuilt. Verse 11, then Nebu. Zaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land and the vine dressers and the farmers. They took the people away with them, one after another, group after group. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all would be people that were taken in this captivity. Many, some of the prophets were taken. Verses 13 through 17 tell us the temple treasures that were taken. I'm not going to read them all. You can read them on your own if you'd like. Verses 18 and 19 list the temple officials that were taken. And then we come to verse 20. So Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these, and he brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. This was the promised land. This was the land that God gave to his people. They had possessed this land for about 860 years. And now the final thing, Judah, the city of Jerusalem is now gone. As I said it in the beginning, I'll say it again. They took it by faith and obedience to the Lord. That's how they got it. And they lost it through idolatry and sin. They're contradictory to one another. You can't walk in faith and obedience to the Lord and still have idolatry and sin ruling your life. This is what they're finding out. Well, the Lord was patient and long-suffering and waited, and he sent warning after warning after warning to them. But they failed to heed him. Oh, they would for a little while. They would generally, when, it, when they had a good king or a godly king, they would turn around a little bit, but they were quick to go back to their own ways. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations around them. They weren't content being governed by God. They didn't want to be governed by God. They wanted a king like everybody else. And when they're finally swept away into captivity by the very nation whom they wanted to be like, the one who they wanted to be like, the one who they were looking at, 
Isn't it amazing that God would take the Babylonians to take his people into captive? He used this people, he used Israel to bring judgment upon the Canaanites for the way they were living. And now they had become worse than the Canaanites. Now the Lord's using a heathen people to take Israel into captivity. But we all know that Israel's not going to be gone forever. We know they're not, we know God's not done with them. Because we know that the nation Israel still exists and we know they occupy the city of Jerusalem today. It's in the exact same place. He's not, he, although he, he, all, there was always a remnant that would, be remi- that, would rem- that would remain. But yet their sin and their idolatry. Can you imagine if they had stayed faithful and stayed obedient? What the nation Israel would, be, would look like today. They would control most of the world's oil. Powerful. Who knows how much they would? I, I can only, my mind can only imagine what they would actually have and what they would possess. They actually took the promised land that was to them. Most of the Middle East was, would be Israel. You wouldn't have a lot of them, but they didn't. They turned away from the Lord. And they turned to the things of the world. Verse 22, then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Now when all the captains of the armies, of the armies, they and their men, heard the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Look down at verse 24. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men, and he said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. It seemed a little unpatriotic and perhaps even ungodly to do this, but it was the right thing to do. One commentator put it this way. He said it was the right thing to do because although it was hard to accept, it was true that the Babylonians were doing the work of God in bringing this judgment upon the deserving kingdom of Judah. In this situation, to resist the Babylonians was to resist God. It was better to humble oneself and submit to the judgment of God brought through the Babylonians. Look what happens, verse 25. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah. He's the governor that was just put in office. The Jews as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Verse 26. All the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies, all the people, small and great, captains of the armies, arose and they went where? To Egypt. For they were afraid of the Chaldeans. After they killed the governor, they were afraid of the Babylonians. They, would, they were afraid they'd retaliate. So where'd they run to? Egypt. By this point, it's been almost 900 years. 900 years of history, and they're right back to the place they started. Think about that. Right back in Egypt. Right back under the same bondage. Right back under the very same thing the Lord said, I'm going to free you from this. I'm going to bring you into a land, and I'm going to give it to you. You're not going to have to worry. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to protect you. And all you have to do is follow me and serve me, and I'll take care of you. They said, we don't want to do that. We want to be like everybody else. We want to do what the rest of the world's doing. They all have kings and gods they're serving. They look like they're having so much fun. We want to go after them. And here they are, right back in the very bondage they were delivered out of. Unbelievable. By faith and obedience, they were delivered from Egypt. But because of their sin and idolatry, they're right back there again. Right back to where they started. Look at verse 27. 
Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him, and he gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments. He ate bread regularly, regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for the provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king. A portion for each day, all the days of his life. When you conform to the enemy's ways, you can eat at the enemy's table. And you might even be full for a while, but I promise you it's not nearly as satisfying and filling as eating at the Lord's table. He's still in Babylonian captivity. He's still no longer leading a people. He's no longer a king. He's just a guy at the king's table. I want you to consider something. The fall of Jerusalem didn't come about in one big cataclysmic battle. It wasn't just one big battle that happened. It wasn't just one big blow up. It happened on one night or, or in one day. It didn't happen overnight. It occurred in stages over a very long period of time. And through the stages and through the generations, the Lord was always there calling people, his people back to him, sending prophets, sending word back to his people. For many years, the Lord sent godly kings and prophets to warn the people. Ultimately, their faith and their obedience to the Lord diminished. It began less and less. They began to do exactly what we read of in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Just listen if this doesn't sound like the nation of Israel. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. That's what happened to the nation Israel. That's what happened to them. Do you realize that this didn't happen overnight? It happened over years and years and years. And all through this, the Lord is speaking to them and continuing to try to draw them back. This is the same way the enemy does battle with us. Do you know that? We're not completely overcome by the enemy in one large battle. It's not like one night, that's it, and one day or a single incident. Instead, it's many small battles that we fight day in and day out, night in and night out. He's always seeking to bring us away from the Lord, bringing us under the control of our fleshly desires. He's always wants you to follow the flesh. Follow the flesh. That's what Israel did. They followed their flesh. What does my body want? That's what I'm going to give it. Just whatever it wants. That's exactly what they did. Come under the control of your desires. He wants to be, the enemy wants to bring you to the point where you'll suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You'll, you'll suppress it. You, you don't, you, you'll, you'll think, he wants us to think it's no big deal. God still loves me. It's just a little thing going on in my life. It's not really idolatry. We don't really idol, have idol worship today. I mean, God is still God. Just because I like myself more than I like anybody else, and I like myself more than God, and I want, matter of fact, I want God to be like me. I want, I want him to do what I tell him to do. It's not really idolatry. That's the idolatry that we face today. You know who the God that we worship today is? It's yourself. It's yourself. It's 100% you. You become the one. I'm going to tell God when I, how he should respond. I'm going to apply God's word where I want it to work. I'm always amazed when someone can get mad at God or when someone can get to the place where they want to shake their fist at God. Somehow I don't think that I worship the same God as they do. I don't think it's the same. I, I don't know that I could ever get to a place where I want to shake my fist at God. He's God. I'm not. 
You see, but if I've established myself as God, and I've established my ways as what I think God should respond, and when he doesn't respond to what I want him to do, and he doesn't do it the way I want him to do, then I become disgruntled with him. I become angry at him. I begin thinking God doesn't care. Oh, what a mistake. That's not the God that I worship. The God that I worship, I fully trust. He's got, he knows me better than I know myself. If he brings me to something, it's for a reason. If he's teaching me something through it, he's showing me something through it, whatever the situation is. See, one of the greatest tactics the enemy uses, he wants to distort God's word. He, wants to, he, wants, he did it in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? He wants to distort the word of God. Satan will convince us that, well, he'll convince you you're all right with God. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You've got all the grace and the mercy you need. Don't, don't, it's okay that you live that way. It doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a little sin. Everybody's got a little sin in their life. Satan will misrepresent God's grace and his mercy. He'll misrepresent who God is. He'll he'll literally fool you into thinking you're okay with God. I'm not saying, and I don't believe that we can lose our salvation like we lose our car keys. But what I am saying is there's a lot of people that are fooled into thinking they're saved and they're not. There's a lot of people that are fooled into thinking, I'm following the Lord, I'm a Christian because of, I've done a three-step checklist or a four-step checklist, and they're not. A Christian means I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It means I'm living after the word of God. It means it's serious to me. It means it matters to me. Just think, someday the Lord's going to say to some people, I never knew you. They're going to say, but Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out, we did all this stuff in your name. And he's I never knew you. I didn't know you. You didn't do it for me. Why, why, who, who would I do it for? Satan, selfish, yourself, whatever the reason is. Please remember what Paul said in his letter to the Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. You see, sometimes we can even slip into thinking that there's a different God because we're in the New Testament. Because we're under that dispensation of grace. We're not experiencing the immediate judgment and the wrath of God. We can look and go, well, that's them. Well, God's long-suffering. He's merciful and he's gracious. But he's also a righteous judge. And he's also just, which means he'll judge fairly. He's also that. You see, I'm, I'm concerned that sometimes in our Christian walk, I think we take sin too softly. I think we kind of come to the place where we just accept certain things because it's part of our culture or it's part of our norms. And I don't want anybody in this room and anybody that might hear this on the radio or on the internet or wherever, I don't want anybody to come to the point where we just get to a place where we say, well, that sin is okay. That thing is okay. You see, that's what started with the nation Israel. It starts with a little bit of compromise where they say that is okay. Never come to the place where you call sin okay. Never justify it. They were supposed to be governed by God. He gave them the promised land. He brought them out of Egypt, across the Jordan River, into the promised land. And 900 years later, almost there, back in the Jericho Plains, where their final king is, not their final king, but they're taken into captivity. The final king of this era is taken into captivity. And they're back into Egypt, where they left from. 
Is it possible for us to go back to Egypt? You see, that's a picture of our walk with the Lord. Egypt is a picture of our life before Christ. We get saved. We get delivered out of that. We go through a desert. We come into the promised land. It's our abundant life in Christ. And then is it possible for us to go back? I don't want to debate the salvation issue, but what I want to say is it's possible for a believer to go back to the things of the world and turn away from the things of God, and I would caution you against that. You see, we need to be on guard because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you look at the nation Israel and you think, if you're like me, you scratch, how could you be so stupid? Yet I look at my own life and I watch the attacks come. And I watch the temptations come. And I watch, and it, 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 it doesn't, they, they didn't do it, on, they didn't decide, they didn't wake up one day and go, you know what, I think we're done with this God of uh, the Bible, we're just going to go, you know, follow these other gods. No, they let it slip in little by little by little. Little piece here, a little piece there, begin to compromise, you have, you know, they marry somebody outside of the, outside of the Hebrew people, and pretty soon she's bringing her religion, or he's bringing his religion, before you know it, you got all this stuff going on. There was a little bit of compromise here and there. And I would challenge us not to compromise. Because the God of the Old Testament that we see judge the nation of Israel is the same God of the New Testament. God hasn't changed. I want to close with this poem. This poem, it's called God is No Fool. It was written by Lewis Cheney. It says this. They say that God has infinite patience and that is great comfort. They say that God is always there and that is deep satisfaction. They say that God will always take you back and I get lazy in that certitude. They say that God never gives up, and I count on that. They say you can go away for years and years, and he'll be there waiting when you come back. They say you can make a mistake, and after mistake, after mistake, and God will always forgive and forget. They say lots of things, people who don't read the Old Testament. There comes a time, a definite for sure time, when God turns around. I don't believe God shed his skin when Christ brought the New Testament. Christ showed us a side of God, and it's a truly wonderful side. But he didn't change God. God remains forever and ever, and that God is no fool. Please never forget the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And while we may get away with sin, and we may even be tempted to say, it's not that big of a deal. I assure you it is. I assure you it is. And I would encourage you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe that we all are, I know all of you in the room tonight. Or I think I do. Yeah, I do. I know all of you. And I know that you are. But don't ever take a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. Don't ever just accept it. It should break your heart when you fall in sin. It should bring you to your knees in repentance to turn away. Think of the nation Israel. Is that the way you want your life to end? I'm delivered. I'm set free. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm in walking in faith and obedience, but pretty soon I've given way to sin and idolatry and I find myself right back to where I started again. That's what happened to them. They left Egypt. They're back in Egypt. Their first victory in the plains of Jericho, the city of Jericho, is where their last defeat took place. And it's real simple. Faith and obedience gave way to sin and idolatry. If you tolerate it, it'll eat away at your life. You see, I'm convinced you're either growing closer to God or growing further away. There is no in-between. You don't stand still very long. You're either going to keep getting closer or you're slipping backwards. It's, and maybe your life as you grow closer and you slip backwards, but you're always doing one or the other. 
You can't stay stagnant very long. You can't stay there very long. You, you've got to keep going. It's the way it's designed. That's the way we're designed. And I want to say one other thing. If you're feeling worn out tonight, the rest that you need is by pressing into God, not withdrawing. It's not a vacation. It's not time away. It's time with the Lord. If you're worn out, if you're stressed out, if you're burdened, if you're struggling, it's because you're not getting your time with the Lord. Go get your time with the Lord and he will refresh you. That's where you'll find your refreshment. Are you walking in faith and obedience? Or are you walking in sin and idolatry? You see, the path is clear. Faith and obedience brought him to the promised land. The land of promise. The Lord's blessings and the Lord's protection. That's what they had. That's what they gave up. But they didn't do it willingly. It snuck in because they weren't standing guard and they weren't following the things of the Lord. They stopped doing the things of the Lord. They began to compromise on the things of God. And I would encourage you that there's a compromise in your life tonight that it would change. That tonight, right now, we're going to take time to pray quietly, but I pray that this would be the time when you go, you know what, Lord? I'm done with this. I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm not compromising any longer. Uh, it's been too long. It's, it's interfering with my relationship with you. I'm, I'm drifting farther away. I pray that right now, at this moment, when you close your eyes and you bow your head before the Lord, that you deal with, that he deals with you on that. Because I don't want to see anybody in this room end up back in Egypt. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. God's not done. He may bring them. He's going to bring them back. We know, that, we know the story through the book of Revelation. We know that the, it's all coming. He's not done with the nation of Israel. He's gonna, they're going to be okay in the end as a nation. He's going he's to restore them. And Christ himself will rule and reign in Jerusalem one day. But they didn't have to go through this. They didn't have to end up back in Egypt. I pray that we don't either. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you tonight. And we look at the nation Israel. Here they are at this dark and dismal place in their history. Lord, they, they walked faithfully. They walked obediently and with you. And you provided and you protected. And you gave them the promised land. And now they're completely cast out of that land. And they find themselves fleeing, running for safety and security back to Egypt. Because they were afraid. Because they turned their back on you. And you were finally bringing judgment upon them. Lord, I just pray tonight that as we come before you quietly for a few minutes, if there's something in our life that you need to deal with, would you deal with it? And would we respond appropriately? So take a few minutes. Go before the Lord. Let him deal with your heart.